Giles Online. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15 says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. We join in the worship of the angels this morning. Good morning and welcome to worship today. It's good to have you with us. It is good for us to meet together and worship the Lord. We worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who turns water into wine and one day he will make all things new. Water you turned into wine Open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you None like you Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes we rise There's no is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other, our God is healer, awesome in power, our God, our God. Into the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise, there's no one like you, none like you. Our God is greater, our God is stronger, because you are high.
It's a reading from 1 John. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Great is your faithfulness. 
service today we have junior church meeting in the church hall and in the church building and at three o'clock we've got sunbeams online on our facebook page and uh, here's ellen to tell us about something different we're doing for our families next week at st giles so i just wanted to let you know that next sunday instead of junior church we have family sunday this is aimed at families with junior church and preschool age children it will be here in the church building. We'll sit together in our families and worship God. It's from 11 till 12, and you need to sign up in the usual way. There'll be a sign-up link that you can click on and let us know who's coming. So we'll be um, celebrating harvest. We'll be taking donations for the friary, as we usually do, if you want to bring anything along to give to that. And there's been a bit of a rumour going around um, amongst the junior church children. They think that I eat an awful lot of pizza. Um, the reason is that I often use pizza boxes uh, to keep our crafts in, and uh, they think that I've just been eating all of these pizzas. So I thought, well, I'll continue that theme for harvest. So um, when you're here, we'll be making some crafts. We might be doing some disappearing pizza crafts and pizza prayers. So we're going to be thinking about being grateful for all the food that God's given us and how to be generous. So I hope you can join us then. Thanks, Ellen. I'll put a link in the comments so you can join through and sign up for our family worship. And if you follow that same link as well, you'll be able to sign up for our other October services too, our midweek communions and our evening services as well. We changed the panel a little bit this week and we've got first priority prayer with communion and then we're also going to have a communion service later on in the month as well. So follow the link, you'll see everything there and you can sign up um, in advance. Well, last week, um, our service was streamed to St. Mary's in Eastleigh. They watched it on their Facebook page, and they've returned the favour this week. Um, it's great to welcome Michael Allen, who's a curate at St. Mary's. He's going to open up God's Word to us today. Now, in a moment, we will have our reading. But before we do, I just want to read a quote from the great theologian Athanasius, one of the bravest Christians of all time, as well as a profound thinker. And he said this about the Psalms. The Psalms have a unique place in the Bible because most of the scriptures speak to us, while the Psalms speak for us. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. 
tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks, Beth, for reading that. It's not an easy psalm to hear, certainly those last few verses, and not easy to read. The danger of that last verse is that it is so difficult, and I do think probably it's the hardest verse in the Bible, uh, the danger of it is that we become almost fixated on it and don't see the rest of the psalm, uh, that we... Uh, actually neglect to do what we talked about last week of setting it in its context, try and understand it that way, or actually that we just think, well, it's so clearly wrong that we kind of found ourselves sitting in judgment over the verse. And and that should always worry us when we have that attitude towards the Bible, because actually we should ourselves be sitting under the scriptures and allow them to shape our lives rather than us shape what they say. So we're going to have to try and do a bit of work to, to understand it. And of course, the way to start is by thinking about the context of that verse, because that verse comes as part of a separate section within the psalm, that section is part of the psalm as a whole, and the psalm itself has a very clear backdrop, which does help us understand it. And I do believe, and you might not agree with me right now, but I do believe actually this is not one of the hardest psalms as a whole. In fact, there's some stuff in here which will really connect with us, I think, and really speak to us. So let's have a look, and let's try and get a handle on what's going on. The first thing to note is simply that this is a very rare psalm because it gives us a specific historical location and time. So it begins, verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. And then verse 3, For there our captors asked us for songs. And this basically tells us that these words were written by the people who have been abducted from from Jerusalem and were being held against their will in the superpower of the day in Babylon. If you want to read the backdrop to it, uh, go to 2 Kings chapter 25 and it will tell you about exactly what happened. Uh, The city is destroyed, the people are carried off and it's all pretty miserable. They've had an awful time, they'll have seen awful things, they'll have no doubt have those memories flashing through their minds and they are now sitting in a foreign land held by their captors, and they weep. So if we were going to sort of put a gloss on the psalm as a whole and try to help us understand the psalm as a whole, I'd suggest that one way of thinking about it is that this is a psalm about what it means to suffer as God's people, maybe to suffer well as God's people. And the psalm itself, it falls into three sections. I'm going to go through those, and the last of them, of course, is the one with the, the particularly difficult verse. And we'll see what it means to suffer and how we should respond to suffering as God's people. So the first section, verses 1 to 4. And in a nutshell, I believe it is telling us that it is right, it is appropriate to grieve as God's people, to grieve at our suffering. Now, you might think that is painfully obvious, but it's not the case that in Christian circles, always, we're very good at dealing with our emotions, and we sometimes feel like we we are sort of 
almost more, we should be more than our emotions. Our emotions, they're, they're sort of a negative part of us and we should ignore them. And partly that's probably just our, our Britishness and the legacy of the Victorian era. But look at Psalm 137 verses 1 to 4. The psalmist says very openly, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. That's the city they've come from. Uh, and then he talks about uh, captors asking song, tormentors demanding songs of joys of us. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? He, the, the psalmist says in verse 4. They are being reminded by the people who are sort of guarding them of quite what's happened because they keep asking, oh, sing us one of the songs from back home. And as soon as they do that, all the grief of the, and the pain that they experience when they're ripped from that land, of course, comes flooding back. And just like I say, on a very surface level, we might want to start by saying, actually, it, suffering is not something that we respond to with a kind of stiff upper lip. The Bible does not call for a kind of British stoicism. It actually suggests that it's totally appropriate for God's people to grieve at it, to be deeply saddened by it. Trauma that happens to God's people uh, does, is, is not less than trauma that happens to other people. And sometimes the church gives the impression that it somehow should be. But that makes us less than human. And if we want to see the picture of the ultimate human, the true human, we think about Jesus, don't we? And when we think about Jesus and grief, we think about him weeping over the city of Jerusalem, knowing how far they are from God. We think about him weeping at the, friend of, uh, of the death of his friend Lazarus. He knew, he knew what it was to be deeply saddened. And we think of him weeping tears of blood at the prospect of his own suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can say more about this, but just in a time of suffering, and it is a time of suffering, with lockdown and the rest of it. It might be very slow suffering, a slow burn. It might be very immediate. You might have lost someone. Uh, in the coming months, we may lose more people we love. We may face death, our, death ourselves. Just hear the first four verses. For God's people to suffer is appropriate response to grieve, to weep, and to do that together. This is a group of people sitting down. And of course, one of the things we really miss at the moment is being able to be together in person and to do that kind of communal sharing of suffering so that we can bear each other's burdens and grieve together, grieve with those who grieve. So perhaps that's just something you needed to be reminded of this morning, that actually it's okay, it is appropriate for God's people to grieve at their suffering. Well that's verses 1 to 4. It, the psalm goes on to the next section, verses 5 and 6, and we know it's a new section because it changes from kind of we language uh, us, our, and then in verse 5 and 6 becomes I. Uh, you can imagine if this is a group of singers or musicians, which it probably is, one of them sort of steps forward for his solo part, if you want to have that image in mind. It turns to I language. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. And I think that this section, a bit like the first one, I hope that will make quite a lot of sense to us. It will be kind of low-hanging fruit and that will be easy to grasp and quite good at nourishing us. And I think that what it's saying is that as well as God's people sort of grieving at their suffering, uh, suffering should make God's people long for God's rule and God's security 
and God's place and God's peace and God's blessing. Now you might think, well, how, Michael, did you get that from verses 5 and 6? Let me read it again. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. And I think to understand these verses, you need to understand the role of Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Because it's not just that it's a really pretty city. You know, it's not just they think, I'd really like to get back to Jerusalem because, you know, I love sort of walking through the sort of the leaves in September or something. No, Jerusalem stands for God's place on earth because that's where the temple is. It's the place of God's very presence and therefore of God's security, his protection against evil. It's the place of blessing, of, of being sort of related well to him and to others. And of course, in the Old Testament, that sort of um, promise that everything that's kind of caught up in that word never quite comes into sort of fulfilment, does it? If you read your Old Testament, you'll see most of the time the people, they might be sort of close to God's presence, but they're really not living as God wanted. But as we read this as Christians, we of course think about how the New Testament takes this image of Jerusalem and carries it forward. And if you know uh, the book of Revelation, which may be a book for another time, you'll know that uh, Jerusalem becomes this uh, sort of a, uh, a word that represents God's perfect place coming back to earth as Jesus returns. So it's the ultimate destination of the creator world. It's not sort of destruction and God starting again, which is sometimes how we picture it as Christians. In the Bible, rather, it's that uh, after a time of w in which we are in, where you know uh, God, uh, Jesus' kingdom is established and some people come to faith, but most people don't, there will come a day when Christ returns and his perfect presence is among us and is a place of peace and blessing and security. The, the word in uh, sort of the Hebrew word is, is shalom. So much is caught up in that word, peace and blessing. And you can imagine if you were an exile in uh, Babylon, having seen all those things, you'd long for a place of healing and peace and blessing. And we too, in our world of suffering, in our experiences of suffering, the, the small things that happen, and maybe in other people's eyes, the small things, but for us often very big things, the big things that happen, they should leave us and make us long for and not forget the new Jerusalem. Uh, those famous verses right at the end of the Bible where it talks about uh, the tears will be wiped away, there'll be no more suffering, no more crying. Uh, the, the leaves of the trees will be the healing of the nations. This is a beautiful picture of a place we're all longing for, of a community we're all longing for, with God right at the heart of it. And it's very easy when suffering comes, frankly as, as Christians or as non-Christians, to just try and cope with it with a variety of techniques, you know, we might get sort of angry and bitter, we might sort of laugh it off sardonically. I was uh, watching uh, an advert the other day with a comedian who was saying, oh, this has been an awful year, let's just laugh at it all. I don't think it does quite does the job, and as Christians we certainly shouldn't be just saying we laugh at it. Or we might just, as I say, respond to suffering with kind of stiff upper lip. No, as well as grieving, rightly grieving for dark, sad, terrible things, it should turn our hearts to the reality that one day those things will be gone and the place where we will live will be the place we were intended to live, the place God made us live, and it will be a place of security and peace and joy and blessing.
And so it might just be a mindset that you want to try and get yourself into. That as things happen, it doesn't mean, you know, you sort of pretend they haven't happened. The grief will be there. But also it should turn our minds to what is to come when Christ returns. And that leads us very much into the final section. If that's the kind of context to those last three verses, I said we'll get on to them. Um, that takes us into those last three verses. And I just want to offer one thought on what those verses sort of might be doing uh, on the sky, sort of a bit of a basic level. And then I'll get to what I think is probably going on a much more deep level with these three verses, verses seven to nine. On one level, I think these verses are here so that, and particularly that last verse, verse nine, and I'll read it again actually now because we might have lost the force of it. And it is a really hard verse. Verse nine, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Those verses are there to tell us that we can express safely to God our deepest, darkest responses to the deepest, darkest things. Verses 7 to 9 is a standalone section. We can see this because it starts with a change from the I language to a prayer to God. It says, remember, Lord, it's the first time that God is mentioned in the psalm. And so these kind of the, the desires to see uh, sort of suffering fallen others on disaster fallen others, which is expressed in the last two verses in particular, is part of a prayer. This is the psalmist on one level taking the, the trauma that they've been through and turning to God and and perhaps just pouring out the worst of what goes on in their heart. And it's very easy to stand and say, oh, I would never say something like that. Oh, how, how, how could they? But, well, I suspect all of us, actually, when we look back at some of the things that have happened to us, we can remember those moments when we weren't quite so composed as we are now thinking about them. Maybe where uh, the thoughts that ran through our mind were really very violent or very dark. And that we would never would have said to anyone else. Perhaps this just gives us permission, in fact, encourages us to not, again, hide from those thoughts, but actually turn them over to God in prayer. Now, like I say, I think that's just, that's a one, on a very human level, that's what those verses might be doing. Just giving us permission to, to, to not feel there's something we can't say to God. We can say anything to God, and the psalmist says it here. But on another level, on a deeper level, actually, I think those verses are actually very connected to the two that have just gone before and make far more sense of what they're there for, even though they remain very hard. And that is that these verses are fundamentally a cry for justice, a cry for justice to be done. Let me read verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, it says, Remember, Lord... What the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell, tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. That's verse 7. The psalmist is recalling to mind some of the uh, sort of extra trauma that was laid on top of this people of God. Because not only did Babylon come and conquer the city and, and cart people off, some of the neighbouring cities, uh, the Edomite nation, came along and took advantage of their weakened state and just crushed the, you know, what was left. And so the psalmist is very much bringing to mind some of the I mean, terrible injustices that they've suffered. That is an injustice, isn't it? You know, kicking someone when they're down kind of springs to mind, except, you know, times a thousand. 
And then he says, uh, verse 8, Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you've done to us. It's a cry for justice. And on one level, you might say, well, that fits into that human response. We long for justice, don't we? And this is a very kind of natural justice. Um, we have a slightly warped view of justice because our uh, Sort of our justice system has been so shaped by sort of the Christian worldview, where mercy plays a significant part and a desire for rehabilitation plays a significant part. But if you look at justice systems around the world, well, you can see that very much it's a tit for tat thing. You know, you steal from this thing, you get your right hand chopped off. You kill that man, you get killed in response. Uh, and then one of that is simply natural justice, isn't it? And we we feel it. You know, if I punch you in the face, you really want to punch me back again. And in one level, we wouldn't be able to say, you, you, you can't do that. Well, you can do that. Sometimes that's appropriate, that's fitting, that's justice. But I don't think that the psalmist is just longing for justice from that you know, generic human need for things to be sorted. And, and we do have a sense inside, don't we, that actually we do want stuff to be dealt with. You know, I don't know if you ever go through the BBC News articles and uh, you, you come across stories, and very often there are stories that make your heart break because of the injustice. You know, the killer that's never been caught, or the killer that's been you know, released and the mother of the victims having to pay his costs, which is what I saw recently. How is that just, we say? We long for justice. Or, of course, the one that we all go to and think, well, didn't Hitler escape the consequences? Where's the justice? He, you know, he popped a pill and he escapes having to face up to what happened to all those people. Do you see what I mean? There's something inside, but actually, I do believe these verses are even more intimately connected to verses 5 and 6. Remember, verses 5 and 6 was a longing for uh, the psalmist to be restored to Jerusalem, the place of God's blessing and presence. And actually, I think the psalmist puts them in here because he knows that you cannot have the former, you cannot have that restoration without the justice. You cannot have Zion with Babylon at the same time. Now, what, what I'm saying is that ultimately, uh, good and evil cannot exist alongside each other. That's not the plan of the Bible. In some worldviews, there's kind of a yin and yang type experience. But in the Bible, there's always a sense of a destination, that destination being not just a return to Eden, that perfect place without any sin or suffering, but actually um, a kind of a, even better version of it, a deeper version of it. And so you cannot have them existing alongside each other. So as the psalmist prays in his, um, uh, sort of from his, from his pain and for his longing to get back to Zion, knowing that he won't be able to get back there unless someone comes and conquers Babylon. He won't be able to go back to Jerusalem while his captors are still standing. Well, we perhaps might not be thinking of it quite in those terms, but we may well be able to use these words and think of these words as a reminder that for there to be peace, there has to first be justice. Now, of course, into this equation, we very much have to put Jesus right front and centre, because the expectation of the Jewish people was that when the Messiah came, he would bring that justice bit so that there could be peace in Zion and through Zion out to the whole world. But of course, when Jesus came, he came not to bring first and foremost justice, but mercy to extend the hand of forgiveness, to bring people into relationship with God, to start that kingdom, as it were, in kind of lots of little rebel outposts in the kingdom of the world. And that's what we carry on experiencing today. Some people come to faith in Jesus, most don't. 
But Jesus himself promised there would come a day when he would return to bring his rule, to bring justice and judgment, so that there might be peace in all the earth, peace and joy and flourishing, being united with one another, united with God, no sin, nothing to make us sad. And these final verses point to that. They point to the day when Jesus returns and judgment will have to be done. Because unless judgment is done, there cannot be the lasting peace. And judgment does have to be done on everyone. Everyone will have to give account of themselves. And the only question is, where will the consequences of our sin fall? Who, who will bear the, the punishment? And Christians are simply those who have said, I look to Jesus as my substitute, as my stand-in. Jesus went to the cross willingly to stand in place for us. And the Christian is simply the one who says, yeah, I, you know what, I, I couldn't face God's right judgment. I couldn't face judge, justice. Someone else needs to do it on my behalf. And of course, Jesus wonderfully did. And part of the response of God's people, I believe, to suffering, yes, is to grieve. Yes, is to long for that place, but also it's to pray for Christ's return. To pray for the day when he would return, when justice would be done, when all the evil will be eradicated, so that the people that God is building from all tribes and tongues and nations would be brought together in total harmony and will be able to flourish in relationship with their God with no suffering anymore. And while we may not feel that these verses particularly need to be prayed, if you're a Christian in North Korea, if you're a Christian in certain parts of China, if you're a Christian in Pakistan, in India, in North Africa, in the Middle East, in various places around the world, you will really feel these verses. If you were a Christian being thrown to the lions in the second century, you'd have really felt these verses. Come, Lord Jesus, is one of the right responses to suffering as God's people. Now, that is one go through of, like I say, a, a well, I think a, a, a good psalm, but certainly a psalm with very hard verses and a very hard last verse. And in no way do I think in some sense I've, I've covered it all or done justice to it all. And you may well have questions or just not be convinced about how I've tried to read this. But I do hope and pray that you've felt encouraged and equipped to read some more of the psalms yourselves and see that even some of the most difficult bits, actually just reading them in their context, reading them through Christ and in Christ, they can become things which feed us and stir us and, and challenge us. They're very much God's word to us, as well as, as Athanasius said, part of our sort of words back to him. But let's finish with that thought in mind of us sort of saying these words back to him, the Psalms as a whole, remembering that not only do we pray these words kind of through Christ or in light of Christ, but the early church was incredibly important to think of us as praying these words with Christ. It's a wonderful picture. Jesus leading us in prayer as we join in. So maybe with all of it, maybe just with the words that we feel able to. But now let me just finish by praying for us all. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we pray for each of us with each of our experiences of, of suffering and uh, the various things that have been drawn out from this psalm. And we pray that your spirit be at work in each of us 
ministering as you as you and they need you too. Lord Jesus, you are the good king who first went under judgment before bringing judgment. And we thank you for your mercy. Lord, give us greater understanding of this, but above all, greater love for you. Amen. God, I love to you.
it's time for the interview part of the vidcast normally i'd be giving you a tease of who we're talking to but you can see them and these ladies need no introduction our lovely church wardens alison and jude hello ladies it's lovely to have you on hello emma hello emma how are you I'm very well indeed, thank you. Now, just talking, we're, we're talking um, to you today, you're our church wardens, but for some people, I kind of include myself in this, I'm not entirely sure what that means. Alison, what does that mean as a church warden? What do you do? Well, you've given us about three and a half seconds notice <laughs> of this question. So uh, we do, it's a mixture, I think, of practical things 
and um, uh, sort of spiritual support, I think, for, for Lee and for anybody else who uh, uh, wants it. So it's all, it's all very informal, it's, it's very undefined. Um, but yeah, we've got, we've got uh, legal responsibilities for the fabric and I don't even know the words yeah. <laughs> for, for, the, for the buildings, for yeah. the buildings. Um, but that the other bit of the job that people know less about, but is there in the Church Wardens book, is to be uh, is to it's something about promoting uh, holy living or something like that is is the wording. But it's a, it's about being a, a spiritual support for the for the church and for the vicar. And I guess with in terms of the practicalities of like the building and stuff, obviously when we went into lockdown, Jude, people weren't going into the church. We were you allowed in there? Uh, no, we weren't allowed either. Uh, I don't think anybody's allowed in, even Lee, at, at some point. So we weren't uh, allowed in at all. Well, this is the question that I ask everybody in uh, in the vidcast chats, and it's it's kind of had mixed responses and different people doing all sorts of different things. But how have you been finding keeping in contact and connecting with your faith um, during the lockdown period? It's, it's been a long time now. I'll go to you, Alison. Okay, well, I did know you were going to ask this one, so I have I have thought about this one. So I I, I would say two main things. I th um, uh, so I've had a very different rhythm of life. I've been uh, working a lot less, uh, which has been uh, it's, it's given me the opportunity to um, to just sit there with my Bible and with my prayer journal for much longer, and that particularly in the early stages of lockdown, and that was really good. Though um, so you do. I at least had a sense of um, I'm not doing anything. So uh, I've had it's mid morning and I've not done anything. And I think you have to push that away. I have been sitting there with the Lord, and that uh, that is doing something, and it's and it's worth doing. Uh, so that was that's one that would be the first thing I, I would say. And the other um, main thing I would say is um, uh, that I have kept in touch uh, with God through the people of God, um, in their ones and twos. Um, I've done a lot of shopping in mm -hmm. lockdown and, <laughs> and whilst shopping, I have bumped into people from St Giles at, uh, in the co-op queue in particular, on street corners. And, and I've sometimes prayed, Lord, direct my feet. Uh, who do you want me to meet today as I've, as I've gone out and about? And I've bumped into a lot of people. Yeah, I've bumped into a lot of people and I've had some really good conversations and they've really encouraged me and they have cheered me up. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going on, but I'll, I'll just... I like it. <laughs> but the, um, the other thing I would say is that people have kept in touch with me, um, that I've, um, I've had some, I would say, I've, I've found lockdown quite difficult for various reasons at, at various times. I've had some pretty low moments uh, where God has felt a long way away. And, um, and people have dug me out. Um, they've sent a text or they've sent three texts because I was hiding. And, um, and they've found me and they've uh, encouraged me and they've prayed for me and they've cheered me up and they've enabled me to go back to God where I couldn't quite manage it on my own. So, um, so I would, Lee was talking in his last sermon about the importance of sending that email, keeping in touch. Yeah, <laughs> I've needed that. It's and amazing people have done it for me. Do, isn't it? Yeah, people have done it for me. And um, so I would like to say thank you to everybody who I've bumped into or I've had coffee with over the last six months. Uh, you have really helped me. And um, 
I'd like, also like to say, if you're thinking that you should be phoning someone, you probably should be. So, <laughs> Jude, what about you? Well, during lockdown, I've been working full time, so there's nothing changed apart from the change of scenery. Uh, so instead of looking in the office, I've been looking at my four walls in my little bedroom for six months. So uh, what I do, I've been reading the Bible in a year. Each morning with breakfast, I do that. Normally, my commute to work, I would do it on the bus. But I've just changed routine, and I sit there and read the, to the Bible in a year. And then followed by um, the blessing, the UK blessing, mm. or the Irish blessing. So that sets me up for the day. So uh, I have tried also to log in onto the Wednesday morning services, like been working, and then, you know, it's like look at the um, service. Um, and then also we've been having our house group by Zoom each Monday. So that's been quite good. We've uh, been doing the Balanced Christian Life and uh, just general chat and stuff. So that's been quite nice to, to keep in contact with everybody from house group. Uh, I've also been on the phone a few times. Alison's phoned me up a few times. I spoke to Roger and Doreen and Marion and various others. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's me really. But my, my life is just it's nine to five every day. So uh, I'm not very excited. <laughs> And for others, it's just been kind of a subtle change. I mean, it's so interesting to hear how people are doing and how they're keeping in contact with the faith. As I say with everybody, we could chat for hours, but we'll leave it there. And it's so lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much, ladies. Thank you, Emma. Thanks, Alison and Jude. I'm going to close with a blessing and then the band are going to lead us out with our final song. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. We go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ. Amen. My Jesus.